hot dogs, armor hot dogs. What kind of kids eat armor hot dogs? Fat kids, skinny kids, kids who climb on rocks. Tough kids, sexy kids. Even kids with chicken pox love hot dogs, armor hot dogs. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is going to be a fun one because it is one of the goofiest movies I can think of in my entire DVD collection. It's one I love to go back and watch all the time, even though I'm not entirely sure it's all that good to begin with, but it is fun to watch. And I am talking, about, of course, about the 1993 sci-fi-slash-comedy movie Demolition Man, starring Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock and Wesley Snipes, which occupies a fun place in my history because it's a... Uh, we'll get to the story in a minute. Um, my guest on this one to delve into Demolition Man, this is going to be an interesting one because he is one of my first foreign-born hosts. His name is Joshua Muir. He's from New Zealand. And I have known Joshua for a long time. He, I love talking to this guy on the Internet. But I have the hardest time understanding him because he's got a very distinct accent. So uh, be prepared for this podcast. There's going to be about 20 minutes at the start where I don't think we understand each other. And it'll take a while for it to click. So I'm going to bring Joshua on the show. He is a... Uh, I don't even know what the hell this guy does. He's just a, a random, shadowy, lurking figure on the Internet who knows a lot about science and loves to make fun of Australia, for all of, of all things. So welcome to the show. Let's talk about Demolition Man, Joshua Muir. Mellow greetings, Mario. Oh, mellow greetings to you, citizen. So I think, it, I think it'll work quite well because the entire point of Demolition Man is it's a story of alienation. And for about the first half an hour, Sylvester Stallone doesn't know what's going on. You won't know what I'm saying, but eventually we'll all come to understand each other. All right. Well, are you indeed calling a band meeting here, Murray? I am indeed calling a band meeting. Uh, Mario, are you present? <laughs> yes, present. Josh is also present. All present and accounted for. Okay, so uh, give us a little backstory on who you are, uh, how you became my co-host for this movie. Why, why are we here today, Joshua? Yeah, so this is this is a very odd movie for me. A lot of people would never, ever pick that I would pick, because I, I normally watch much more sort of erudite movies. I'm a, I watch a lot of, like, Korean chamber dramas. But this movie, for, for what is, like, a dumb 1993 action film, I feel like there's actually a lot to it, and... So actually, I have a bit of a background with this movie. So, cause I'm, so I'm a scientist, as sort of Mario briefly mentioned, and I do a lot of work on um, the future and predicting the future. And so I, I, I have a lot of thinking about like dystopias and predictions in, in film. And as a child, actually, I had to write an essay evaluating um, a piece of literature that predicted the future. And everyone else in the class, they did – like 1984, Fahrenheit 451, Handmaid's Tale, but being a very precocious young child, I actually did my essay on Demolition Man, and I claimed in that essay that it was the most accurate prediction of the future that I'd ever seen, and I got an A+, so I feel like that was good. <laughs> wow, so you have some actual street cred with this movie. I do. This is, I mean, I, I laid the groundwork for this movie when I was about, I would have been about 12 years old, I think, so... 
Okay, I will give my my story, my backstory with this movie. It uh, came out in 1993, in October of 80, of 93, and I was lucky enough because I lived in California at the time, and they do test screenings in California because that's where all the the, the consumers they want to uh, they want to reach it are. So I was invited to a test screening in like April or May of 93, way before it came out. And this is what I always remember is that they give you these little cards to fill out before the movie asking what you think about all the actors and what you think about their characters and their history. And my, what I always remember is that they were very interested in Sandra Bullock. They're like, are you a fan of Sandra Bullock? And I'm like, who the fuck is Sandra Bullock? I had no clue who this person was, but this was like their entire marketing campaign. They were judging what people thought of Sandra Bullock and what they thought of her becoming maybe a star. So that's the one thing I always think of in this movie. Like, wow, I was there on the, the uh, rise of Sandra Bullock as one of the greatest actresses of our time. I mean, I've got I've got a very important question now. So, if you you're saying you were in Los Angeles in 1993, how did you how did you get to the cinema when it's like overrun with gangs, <laughs> the Hollywood signs on fire, they can't land planes? Well, remember that happened in '96, so we still had three years. '93 was still the before time. Oh, so we still we're just building up to that. Yes, it was still good. There was still a uh, the LA riots were just starting up, and so we were still okay. Okay, that's that's it. I, I was a little concerned. Now, uh, okay, I have a question for you. How you're not from America, obviously. Have you been here many times? Like, does this movie match your view of what America was would be like? Uh yes. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've got, I've got some very specific points to get into, but basically, Sylvester Stallone in this movie is what every non-American imagines every American is like. Yeah, he he is pretty much the template. Everybody I know is basically Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, and so I feel like it, it might actually be quite different watching this as a foreigner because I feel like as an American, you all root for Sylvester Stallone in this movie. I think he's supposed to be the hero, but for a foreigner, he's very much the villain. <laughs> so all foreigners are basically the idealized society of 2032. Yeah, so I mean, Doctor Cocteau, who is who we will find out is the villain in this film. He's he's very much he's our hero. We we would elect him president. So wow, so this movie is an entirely different watching experience in New Zealand than it is in America. Yeah, I mean this is I mean this is what my my award winning essay was about. <laughs> oh good, I'm glad you're here. Well, okay, so how does Australia fit into this? Yeah, I'm pretty sure those um the the scenes in 1996 Los Angeles, they just filmed that in Australia. They didn't have to put up a set or anything. They just went to Australia and filmed it there. So that was just like filmed last week in Australia. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, so to give people a little backstory on this movie, it's a movie about Sylvester Stallone is like the biggest action hero in the 90s. He's a big thug. He blows stuff up, and he is he commits a crime that he he, he or he is found guilty of a crime of accidentally killing a bunch of hostages. He is frozen into a cryo prison, and they have to bring him back 30 years later to fight this criminal, Simon Phoenix. And let's just say the future's kind of goofy. Would that be a good way to describe it, Joshua? Uh, that'd be, that would be a very good way to describe it. I think the, the most accurate is, so I, I open the podcast with mellow greetings. They all talk in very elaborate, very mannered, over-the-top style. And so they say things like, if you get mad, you've got to enhance your calm, or you've got to drop your hormones. Yeah, mellow greetings. Yeah, that. There's a couple things about this movie that I'm assuming most of my audience has seen Demolition Man, but if you haven't, 
Yeah, and the future has become this weird, dumbed-down... Uh, what is the exact phrase? The exact phrase is, at one point, Den- or, uh, Wesley Snipes says in the movie, the world has become a pussy-whipped, Brady Bunch <laughs> version of itself run by a group of sissies. So that's the whole gist of this movie, that the future has become this wimpy little... It's supposed to be a utopia. It's supposed to be like New Zealand, as you said. Yeah. But it's kind of wimpy, and it's kind of... They all speak in the stilted language. They've never seen violence, and uh, there's rules against everything. Yeah, there's no there's no tobacco, there's no meat, there's no alcohol, there's no salt. Anything that's bad for you is automatically banned. And of course, no toilet paper. Oh, yes. The free seashells. There's a couple great running jokes in this movie, which is why I wanted to do on staff picks. The one thing is that the future is just so wimpy, and Stallone gets dumped into this wimpy future. And the uh, seashells, there's a running gag throughout this movie about how nobody uses toilet paper. They use this seashell thing that nobody can figure out. And the swearing monitors, Joshua. This is the thing that I always remember about this movie. Anytime somebody swears throughout this entire movie in the future, they are immediately dinged a one credit for violating the verbal morality statute. Smoking is not good for you and has been deemed that anything not good for you is bad, hence illegal. Alcohol, caffeine, contact sports, meat. Are you shitting me? John Spartan, you are fined one credit for a violation of the verbal morality statute. And, and I mean, even in like the big action scenes where they're having shootouts, they'll be swearing at each other and you just hear this little ding in the background. Where the goddamn guns? You are fined one credit for a violation of the verbal morality statute. What? Fuck you! Your repeated violation of the verbal morality statute. Fuckers are fast, too. So what, 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 he needs batteries? What size? I mean, what, what the fuck do you find batteries in the future? What, is a battery store around, motherfucker? Excuse me, museum patron, can I... Wonder about this shithead. Be fucked. You are fine, what? Yeah, that, that's the thing that always won me over about this movie, because I'm not really the biggest fan of straight action movies. This movie, I'd almost argue, is more of a comedy than an action movie. Oh, definitely. I see. I, I always picture it as kind of, so kind of a comedy, but also kind of quite a, actually a very good sci-fi. When you actually look into it, it's actually very accurate. Actually, going back to the free seashells, I just want to talk about that a second, because so I do a lot of traveling for my job, and I'm always in very strange places, Often I don't speak the language. They've got quite different cultures. But the free seashells is the first time I've ever seen that kind of alienation really portrayed on film. Like, you don't know what's going on. Everyone's laughing at you. It's a very sensitive moment. And it's just something that's so obvious to everyone else, but you just can't work it out. So it's, it's a funny joke, but it's also actually really profound. So do you have problems removing fecal matter on your travels? Oh, definitely. Like, oh, you go to rural China, you, you will have problems as well. <laughs> Okay, but yeah, uh, that's the thing. That the, a lot of the sci-fi stuff is interesting, but I've always argued this movie works better as a comedy than an action movie. Like, I can't tell you how many times, Joshua, I've watched this movie, and I love the first hour of it, and then I kind of lose interest in the second hour because that's when it gets on action-y. Yes, okay, so this is quite a problem because I was, I was relying on you to take us through the second hour because I had the same thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. I was researching this podcast. I watched it last night, and I, I got to the hour. I watched the first hour, get to the Taco Bell part, and then I'm like, eh, I'll just kind of make up the rest. <laughs> That's my exact strategy as well. It'll be just about the time that I figure out what you're saying, then the movie stops being interesting. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, but yeah, this is a movie. It's not great. It's not considered like a classic, but it's so goofy, and there's so much weird stuff going on. But I know historically Dennis Leary has said it's a piece of shit. Um, I know it's it's it. There was a lot of problems with the writing. It gets very convoluted towards the end. There's characters that appear and then just disappear from the movie with no ending. Um, have you noticed that as well? If, assuming you watch the ending. Yeah, so I mean, yes, yeah, so objectively, it's not—it's not a very good film. But I, there's a lot of just very strange things you won't see in any other film, and that's why I always recommend watching it, just to get your like the like things like the seashell stuff that's just so bizarre you won't see anywhere else, and so it's worth the effort. Okay, do you want to walk people through this movie who have never really seen it before, maybe? Okay, let's let's go. Let's try. All right, so here we go. We are going to walk you through Demolition Man a.k.a. the Sandra Bullock starring vehicle that the studio was really curious to know if you were going to love her. Oh, we've, we've got some thoughts on Sandra Bullock in this film, actually. All right, so we start in the dystopian future, and this this is why it's hilarious to do a show like Staff Picks, because this movie was made in 93, but the future of the movie was 96, so they're talking about a immediate future where the world has gone to shit, and this is now, what, 30, 25 years ago now? Yeah. So it's weird to talk about the future in the past like this. Well, to me, I'm pretty sure that was a fairly accurate depiction of 1996 uh, in America. I remember 1996 having a lot more rap videos and less dystopia. I mean, well, in those rap videos, they probably set the Hollywood sign on fire, so... <laughs> yeah, so this movie was only three years in the future. They were they were anticipating a lot of problems in the U.S. in the next three years, which I... <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, what was going on in 1993 that they thought this is where we're going? Well, that was the MC Hammer Vanilla Ice years, so I can see why people. Oh, I mean that makes sense then. Yeah, the the, the, the Hammer Ice Wars. We're heading down a dark path. Just brutal. So, okay, what was New Zealand like in '96? Because I know you're watching this movie and you're seeing America's burning on fires and like there's prisoners running everywhere and there's crime. Like, well, you got to remember we didn't we didn't get cinema until about 2012, <laughs> so. We didn't watch it in 1993. How did you watch this, then? I watched it, yeah, I watched it, like, many, many years later when it came out. But they, they had to put it on a boat, and when the boat got there. <laughs> I thought it was, like, Three Amigos, where the guy comes around in a truck with, like, the old, the black and white movie, and he used the hand crank to show it to the villagers. Well, I mean, first of all, we had, like, a herald who came and, like, told us the story. <laughs> but it took quite a while until the actual movie came. So this movie first showed up on a tapestry. Somebody wrote it. Yeah, it's uh, and there's a lot of rumors. We weren't sure if it really existed or not. There was there was New Zealand scholars for a long time were debating whether it was a myth or not. <laughs> All right, so so in 1993, Joshua was described the plot of this movie from Socrates or some variant of him, and it was passed down. So anyway, yeah, so it's 1996 in the U.S. And America is just going to hell. There's just war and fires everywhere, and Los Angeles is a hellhole. And we meet our hero of the movie, a.k.a. the villain, right? He's your villain. Yeah, definitely. Uh... John Spartan, played by Sylvester Stallone. And I will say this was kind of a weird time in Sylvester Stallone's career when he was really trying to break away from being Rocky and everything. So he started doing all these other action movies. And I don't know if very many of them were that successful, but, you know, he gave it the old college try, and he, he thought he was a comedian, which I always thought was amusing. Yeah, he's, well, he's definitely the straight man in this film. Everyone else is doing a lot of work. I, don't, I think Sylvester Sloan just sort of showed up and just talked normally to people. <laughs> so, so you're saying he has a comical voice that's hard to understand? 
Yeah, so he's basically, basically, I, I really sympathize with him. <laughs> so, wait, so all, so you've already said all Americans are basically Sylvester Stallone, and now you're saying you're basically Sylvester Stallone. So via the reflexive property, you are an American, you're saying. Uh, this movie does weird things to my brain. It's, it's really, a, my brain sort of shuts down various sectors to try and really understand it. Okay, so... So John Spartans in 1996, Los Angeles, and he's being sent in to catch the notorious criminal Simon Phoenix, who is played by wonderful actor Wesley Snipes. Now, are you a big Wesley Snipes fan, Joshua? To be honest, this might be the only Wesley Snipes film I've seen. (laughs) This is really not my genre. So you never saw White Man Can't Jump? I'm not actually sure I have. Oh, wow. I'm I'm dying to know what you think of the L.A. street ball scene in the mid-90s. Oh, that can that can be our sequel. Does he always have a horrible blonde mohawk? No, they they made him dye his hair blonde for this, and he hated it. Like he shaved his head immediately after the movie. For people who don't know, yeah, Wesley Snipes is a uh, black man, and they gave him blonde hair in this movie, and it looks ridiculous, and it's it's terrible. But it's uh, you you may not know this. I may be speaking of a world you don't know here, Josh. But the NBA, there was a player named Dennis Rodman who loved this movie and he started doing he started dressing just like Wesley Snipes in this movie because he liked the blonde hair. So this movie is responsible for Dennis Rodman becoming a blonde for a couple of years. I say well originally their role was actually supposed to be played by Jackie Chan. And so Jackie Chan with a blonde mohawk, I think that would have been quite something. Yeah, that he is not Josh is not lying. This movie was written where Jackie Chan was supposed to play the bad guy and he said that uh, Asian audiences have a problem with someone who is always a hero playing a villain, so he wouldn't do it. So that's how we got Wesley Snipes, but I'm not entirely sure I could picture this movie with Jackie Chan in it. I, I, I'm really not sure yeah, what would happen. It would be, it'd be quite a different movie, I feel. So Stallone and Wen, when Simon Phoenix are fighting, and there's this big 90s action thing where, you know, Wesley Snipes takes these a bus full of passengers hostage, and Stallone is called in to stop him, and Stallone does the old 90 thing, 90s thing of just blowing up the entire building. Like, it's okay to have some acceptable losses to if, you, if you save the day, and he finds out he accidentally killed the hostages, and they're like, you're going to jail, and he's like, oh, crap. So here we go. So in 1996 dystopian future, again, 20-something years ago, he is put into cryo-freezing. <laughs> now, Joshua, please explain this process to people. Well, actually, the process in the film would not work. John Spartan would be dead. So cry- cryo-freezing is basically where you freeze down the body so that everything stops working. And if you do it correctly in theory, then you can just warm the body up again and they will be perfectly fine. They won't age. They won't die. In the movie, however, they just... It's a very slow and involved process. In the movie, they just pump them full of freezing liquids that are that are far colder than anything exists on Earth. All of all of their cells would rupture. Everyone would be dead. So you're saying there's flaws in this movie? I'm saying I'm saying that I found with detailed mini rewatches and a very extensive scientific education, I finally found a flaw, <laughs> and that their cryo freezing is not accurate. So anyway, that's the point of the movie, that they, they don't put criminals in jail now, they cryo-freeze them, and they end up in a big block of ice where they're naked, which, I don't know why they had to be naked. I think it's just an excuse for Stallone to show his ass to the audience for about a good five minutes. I mean, uh, yeah, you can't freeze clothes, they, they just, they don't freeze, so. <laughs> Could they put them in a robe or something? Like, why? Why do we need gratuitous ass shots? No, you 
1996, we didn't have freezing robes yet, so... I mean, you could do that now, but they predicted a lot of things in this movie, but not, not freezing robes. Okay, I have to give a little history here. I'm a little older than Joshua, so I can say that uh, back in the 90s, they used to have these, these restaurants, Planet Hollywood, owned by Stallone, Schwarzenegger, and Bruce Willis. And I used to go to one in Las Vegas all the time, and there's always Hollywood memorabilia in them. And they had this prop, the naked Stallone in ice, in that Hollywood, Planet Hollywood in Vegas. And it was right over the main room. So you could not walk into that restaurant with seeing goddamn Sylvester Stallone's ass staring down at you through a block of ice. So that's I always remember that when I see this movie. I mean, so what you're saying is we're discussing a very goofy movie, but real America sounds much more goofy. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is what we do. But when in America, we like seeing our movie stars naked asses. That's how we eat best. <laughs> I mean, maybe if it was on the street, I'd be okay with it, but in a, in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, so so the movie, that's the first, the start of the movie. Stallone is frozen, Wesley Snipes is frozen, and uh, now we flash forward. What what year are we in here? 2032 now, the rest of the movie? 2032. All right, so why don't you explain what 2032 is like? And, and you can't cheat and just say it's like New Zealand, it's awesome. I mean, uh, you just exactly preempted my joke. <laughs> so, L.A., it's now completely different. It's now very open. It's very green. Everything is everything is very clean. It's pretty. It's nice. Everyone seems to be living very comfortably. Everyone's everyone's very polite. It's just it's just basically a utopia. It's amazing. Yeah. See, I was saying as an American, this frightens me. Like this to me is the dystopia. It's so clean and nice, and everyone's polite. I'm like, ew. This is like a horror movie for me. Like. I, I, <laughs> that baffles me. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's a very nice community and everything's perfect and they have they have somehow managed to rid the world of crime. There 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 is a zero crime yeah, rate. Yeah, zero crime rate. No crime, no criminals. Hang on, occasionally there's some graffiti, but it's cleaned immediately. Yeah, but that's that's like the top crime that they ever have to deal with is graffiti. It's like the top crime they have. They I mean they still have a police department. All right, so we're in 2032. It's just uh, the city is called San Angeles. It's like San Diego and Los Angeles have merged into one big metroplex. And it's just a perfect utopia. And Sandra Bullock is this little, uh, is this police officer named Lenina Huxley. And uh, what what is she like? How would you describe her to someone who's never seen this? Honestly, yeah, this is, I mean, this is, a, I find this quite an amazing performance from Sandra Bullock. It's very different from pretty much everything else you've seen from Sandra Bullock. She's very, she's very meek. She's very enthusiastic, straightforward. She, she any, but she's also obsessed with the 1990s. And she, so in this, in this perfect future, she's, she's obsessed with like the action movies. She would be obsessed with Demolition Man if it was a, if it was a film that came out then. And so she's a police officer, but she's very bored. She's got nothing to do. She really wants there to be some crime like there used to be. Yeah. Just straight out obsessed with the 20th century. She just loves everything about it. Her office at work has like lethal weapon posters and like action movie stuff. Yeah. And, and what we find out later in the movie that I love is that she gets actually physically turned on by violence because she's never seen it before. Yeah. And she always tries to drop action catchphrases, but she always gets them the wrong way around. She's very cute and charming. And, and again, I have to say when I... I guess going into this movie, they were giving out these cards. What do you think of Sandra Bullock? And I'm like, I don't know who the hell that is. And I remember coming out of this movie, I'm like, that lady's really funny. I like her. 
And just for people to give them the timeline, she did this movie. This was like her first big blockbuster. And then she did Speed right after. And that's the one that everyone remembers. But this was really the first one. So, and it's very different from her later sort of roles that she would often do. Wait, because she's not perky and likable in later roles? I feel like she's a lot more assertive in later roles. She's a, that's right, she's a lot more meek and sort of obsequious, I feel. Well, I mean, to be fair, everybody in 2032 is meek. <laughs> I mean, yes, but you'd expect if you dropped Sandra Bullock in there that she, she, she would kick some heads, but... Okay, so here we are in the future, and just all is well, all is serene, mellow greetings for everybody, and we're about to have a problem. There's this cryo prisoner, Simon Phoenix, and he's up for parole. It's like 40 years into his cryo sentence, and they unfreeze him. And all of a sudden, he somehow knows all the codes to his manacles and his prison cell, and he gets out, and he starts wreaking havoc and basically killing people. And, uh-oh, yeah, the cops don't know how to handle this. Hang on. Well, first of all, he doesn't kill people. He murder death kills people. Yeah, explain that to people. What's a murder death kill? So, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of them, but I still don't quite know. In the future, you don't. There is no killing. There is murder death kill. That is the official term for it. See, and I'm kind of numb to this in America because we see murder death kills every five minutes everywhere, so it doesn't seem like a big deal. But to these San An uh, San Angeles people, this is incredible. Like. All of a sudden, Simon Phoenix comes out of jail. He breaks out of his, his cage. He commits three murder-death kills, and they're shocked. Like, there hasn't been a murder-death kill. In well, they haven't had one for, like, 20 years, they mentioned. Yeah, 22 years. It's been since the last murder-death kill. So they don't know what to do. And, well, they, they have a computer that tells them what to do, which is approach very quietly, try and de-escalate the situation, talk to the criminal, which... That's basically how the police work in, in the rest of the world that's not America. So we, we, I thought this was going to be quite a good strategy. I thought the movie would be over. Simon Phoenix would just turn himself in. They'd all have some coffee back at the station. And then the rest of the movie would just be about this utopia. But it doesn't quite turn out that way. So you thought this would be like a 20-minute short student film? Yeah, because, I mean, the, their policing strategy seemed pretty good to me. <laughs> it's all about de-escalating the situation. So the, the cops are, they try to arrest Simon Phoenix. And this is one of the scenes that always makes me laugh. And this is why I recommend this movie to people is where the San Angeles Police Department comes and surrounds him. And they basically, like you said, they, they you said the uh, fugitive or the criminal. He's not the criminal. He's a maniac. They're always described as maniacs in this. Uh, they also call him a stress breeder at one point. <laughs> and a meat eater at one point. I mean, that's basically equivalent to murder death kills, so. So Simon Phoenix gets out and he starts hacking into this computer system because all of a sudden he has, he's like been trained with this mission. Somebody, when he was asleep, gave him this mission in his head. He's here to kill somebody. Well, so just to clarify that point a bit, so all the prisoners, when they're in cryo sleep, they're supposed to be taught how to be societies. They're supposed to be rehabilitated. But Simon Phoenix has been taught how to hack into things instead. Yeah. So he comes out, he starts hacking into things, and the police surround him. Although, what I love about this is that it's not so much that he did three murder-death kills that get the police to come after him. It's that he violates the verbal morality statute twice. He says, he's there He's there at a little ATM, and he says he drops two F or swear words, and immediately the cops come and arrest him. Fuckers are fast, too. Hey. I mean, yeah, well, that's that's the kind of thing they had to deal with. Murder, death, kill, who knows what you're dealing with there. 
So the great scene right at the start of the movie when all these cops surround the maniac and and uh, demand that he turn himself in, and he's like, fuck you. you and they're like, one. no, turn yourself in or else. And he turns around and he immediately unleashes a savage ass kicking on every single police officer in the San Angeles Police Department, to which Rob Schneider, the receptionist of the of the the police department, utters one of the best lines in the movie. And I will tell you, Joshua, you will enjoy this because I saw this in the theater and everybody laughed really hard at this line where he says, we're police officers. We're not trained to handle this kind of violence. (laughs) I mean, that is a good line, but my brain automatically shuts down whenever I see Rob Schneider on a movie screen, so I missed it completely. Well, yeah, see, you don't know America. He's like the biggest movie star in America now. (laughs) I mean, I I definitely don't know America in that case. We have reached the dystopia that the movie hinted at. (laughs) Okay, so... So Simon Phoenix has got out. He goes mad-ass on every single member of the police department, and he just... And in real life, uh, in real life, Wesley Snipes is a trained black belt. I don't know if you knew that, Joshua. No, but I mean, when I saw the scene, I thought this this is the Jackie Chan scene. This is why I want to see Jackie Chan dancing around. And there's actually a fun bit of trivia I read that uh, Wesley Snipes is so good at martial arts and karate, he moves so fast that they had to slow him down for the movie because you couldn't see his kicks and stuff. So when you watch this movie, that's him moving at like half speed just so the cameras can catch him. <laughs> Oh, no wonder the police couldn't stop him. Exactly. See? That's the thing. We have good cops in America, Joshua. You're, I think you're underselling us. <laughs> I was saying, yeah, New, New Zealand cops wouldn't know what to do in that case. Well, yeah, okay, let's let's delve into this. What if Simon Phoenix was dropped into New Zealand? What's going to happen? So it'll take a while for the news to get around. Um, we've still, like, mostly, like, uh, I don't know if you guys have, like, strings and cups? Because we've got, we've got a lot of those, and that's how we pass our news around. But once, once I think we're all just going to get on a boat. It's done. We're, we're not very confrontational people. We'll just let them have it. But, but you see, it's two islands, so we might just get, we'll let them have one of the islands, and then we'll just go to the other island. That is the New Zealand policing strategy. Simon Phoenix shows up, and the country just leaves to let him have it. I mean, it's effective. <laughs> it's like, like a Buster Bluth defense tactics here. You just roll up into a ball. Like we haven't had a murder death kill in like a hundred years. So like, don't come knocking on us. All right, so so Simon Phoenix is loose in San Angeles, and they don't know what to do. And they go to the leader of the city, this guy, Doctor Cocteau or whatever, and he's like the. How would you describe him? What's he? What's he like? The the benevolent leader of this entire utopia. Yeah, the glory, the glorious hero of the future is how how I would describe him. Okay, the glorious hero, and he says, well. We don't really know how to stop this guy. Uh, why don't you do whatever is possible in the police department to stop him? Because they, no one has any ideas. <laughs> and so luckily, Lenina Huxley, uh, Sandra Bullock has an idea. She's like, you know, I love action movies from the 90s. Let's just recreate an action movie in the 90s. Let's, let's thaw out the biggest thug hero of the 90s to come out and stop this bad guy. They just happened to have a super ultra cop just on ice. That was very lucky. Oh, that's the most effective. That's what you should you should talk to the New Zealand people about that. Have a have an ultra cop frozen just in case, because you never know. Can you like ship us some? Like we 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 don't have any. I mean, one of those Mordor guys, right? Someone from Lord of the Rings is close, right? Oh yeah, we they're, they're, we dumped them all in a volcano. So. <laughs> Wait, and you said you're not a violent people, and you're dumping people in volcanoes? Ah, uh, orcs orcs don't count. They're not they're not people. Okay, so. They go and they, uh, 
Lenina Huxley because she has read about the 20th century. She knows the legend of John Spartan. She's like, let's unfreeze this guy and bring him out. And like, you know, we'll we'll send someone from his era to catch this criminal of that era. So the other cops have no idea. I mean, no other ideas that are better than this. So like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's just unfreeze John Spartan. So here we go. We're going to unfreeze Sylvester Stallone. And look, oh, good. More shots of his naked ass. You are fine. One. I mean, I'm just the plot of this movie is a lot stupider when you describe it than when you're watching it. I would say it's equally stupid, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you get distracted by Sylvester Stallone's ass. You don't really think about quite how stupid it is. Yeah, so Sylvester Stallone is unthawed and brought out into this pussy whip utopia of 2032. And the first thing he does is he wants a cigarette, and they're like, well, you can't have those. Those are bad for you, so they're illegal. And he's like, are you shitting me? And then there goes the verbal morality statute. I I just love him dealing with the verbal morality statute throughout the rest of the movie. And, I mean, eventually this is how he gets around the free seashell problem as well. Yeah. Oh, okay, let's do the seashell. Okay, so... So Spartan is back in, uh, he's been reinstated and he learns that everything he knows is gone. His wife is dead. His daughter is all grown up now. He's not allowed to, here are the actual terms of the future. (laughs) You cannot have alcohol, caffeine, no contact sports, no meat, no chocolate, no gasoline, no uneducational toys, and no spicy food. Now, I don't get the spicy food one. I mean, we don't really have spicy food in New Zealand, but I imagine it just makes you like, Thought or something. It's not very pleasant. Okay, well, I mean, and the spicy food does lead to bathroom issues, which I guess leads into the seashell scene. I mean, yeah, I think I think they just avoid the, the bathroom at all costs. And here's the joke that everyone remembers from this movie, that Stallone goes into the bathroom, and he's this first time in the future, and he, like, comes out, and he says, you know, I don't... You guys have a great society here and everything, but uh, you're all out of toilet paper. And Lenina's like... She started giggling, and he's like, what? And she's like, she explains to everyone in the police department, back in the 20th century, they used to use wadded up pieces of paper to wipe their butts, and everyone just laughs, which I imagine is, uh, how do you feel about that as a newsie? Like, do you guys have toilet paper technology there now? <laughs> well, I mean, we, we, we have paper, yes. Good. <laughs> so Stallone mentions, well, there was no toilet paper. All you had was the shelf, the shelf with these three little seashells. <laughs> And this will become one of the running gags in the movie because they never explain to him how the, the seashells work. You just have to make up your imagination. I, I, so, I mean, I, I've progressed as far as science. I now have access to supercomputers, and I've solely done this to try and solve the mystery of the free seashells. I spent a lot of my day just sort of trying to work this, modeling different configurations. I still haven't solved it. Did you get, like, grants for that and stuff? Someone's actually paying you to figure out the seashells? Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is a compelling problem. Everyone wants to know. We've only got about uh, what, like, fifteen years to work it out. I mean, we don't want to we don't want to end up in like twenty thirty one, and we don't know how to use the free seashells. Yeah, then you have to like rush, and then it's not going to be it's not going to be done with passion at that point. No, I want, yeah, I want to do it for for the love. So yeah, Stallone. I was. This is one of the mysteries in theater over the years that I've always wondered how how the hell do these seashells work. And I know on the Internet Movie Database trivia, they actually explain how it works, that two of them are used like chopsticks, Joshua, uh-huh. and they are to remove the, the maniac fecal material, and then the last seashell is used to scrape the anus for any remaining material, but they never mention how you're supposed to clean the seashells, so uh, theoretically they just stay dirty afterwards. 
I feel like we should stick with toilet paper, to be honest. All right, thank you. See, well, that score one for America. Josh, right there. I'm going to use that as my endorsement. Joshua Muir says score one for America. Fine. You, you, you need all the victories you can take. <laughs> yeah, so, so Stallone cannot figure out how the seashells used to wipe his butt. But he does have a fantastic little trick. He goes up to the little verbal morality statute machine, and this always gets a laugh. Even I've seen this movie hundreds of times, probably. I watched it yesterday. I still laugh. Yeah, I still laugh. It's still funny that he just starts swearing under his breath, and he says, "I, I will, I will quote it." I, 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 as a utopian American, I don't like swearing, but I will quote what he says here. He says, "He tells of the machine, thanks a lot, you shit-brained, fuck-faced, duck-fucking, pain in the ass." And all of a sudden, these little verbal morality fines start printing out one after another, and he waits until he has enough, and he grabs them in his hand, and now he has toilet paper, and now he's going to go into the bathroom. So, score one for Sly Stallone. I was like, that was, that was a lot more swearing than I'm used to. Normally, if I want that much swearing, I go to Australia, so. <laughs> now, why do you hate Australians so much? Have we delved into this? I mean, there is a, there is a very long, complicated history there. Is it because they're what, dickheads? I mean, pretty much. <laughs> That's the short version. So, John Spartan is out, and he's learned how to wipe his butt, and he and the police chief clash, where the police chief calls him a caveman and a Neanderthal. I think this is where he says, you dirty meat eater. <laughs> but Spartan is the only one who knows where Simon Phoenix is going to go. He's like, this guy wants a gun. He's going to go wherever there's a gun. He's going to find some weapons. He's going to wreak havoc. And Lenina's like, well, you know, in the future, in New Zealand here, the only place we have guns is in a museum. So, cut to the museum. <laughs> so, I, I used to work at a museum. And so, we had some guns, but I'm pretty sure none of them worked. Like, I feel like that's the first thing you do before you put a gun in a museum, is you take all the bits out of it. Oh, yeah. So, I like this one, that they are fully loaded guns in the museum. And they're just sort of hanging around, and you want to pick them up and just start going on a rampage. Yeah. Okay, there's some funny, some goofy stuff here at this scene where Simon Phoenix goes to the museum, and he sees the uh, loaded gun exhibit, which for some reason they have. <laughs> and he, he starts kicking at the display case. He's trying to burst in there to get to the gun. And this attendant comes up to him, and he sees Simon Phoenix going crazy and kicking this uh, glass. And the attendant says, what seems to be your boggle? And Simon Phoenix is like, how much do you weigh? Throws him. Throws the attendant through the glass. Gets the gun. Not only gets the old archaic guns from the 20th century, he gets this newfangled, what is it, a magnetic accelerator gun that uses fusion? Well, so at one point it's a magnetic accelerator gun. Then at another point they describe it as a fusion gun, (laughs) which are two completely different things. Well, you know, no American is going to be able to discern between those two. We have no idea those are different. I mean, this is, this is the second inaccuracy I found. Okay, so what is the difference? How is a magnetic fusion gun or magnetic accelerator different from a fusion gun? I mean, so a magnetic accelerator uses a variable magnetic field to amplify some kind of projectile. It's often called a rail gun, whereas a fusion gun puts uh, forces atoms into each other like in the sun to make a massive explosion of energy, which you then will just channel into the target. They, they operate on completely different mechanisms. Okay, well, in America, we just put words together. That's what we do. We just make up things. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I thought if there's one thing Americans should know about, it's guns. So Spartan and Lenina Huxley are racing off to the museum to stop Simon Phoenix. 
And this is where we learn one of the other great things. Not only is the the future, the utopian future, all sterile and lame and weak, but their number one radio station plays old TV commercials from the 20th century because they find them quaint. I mean, I I, I was quite enjoying that music. I kind of bopped along to it. So as they're driving, Lenina turns on the oldies channel to help John Spartan acclimate, and we hear a commercial from like the 1950s for Armor Hot Dogs. Hot dogs, armor hot dogs. What kind of kids eat armor hot dogs? Now, I'm guessing you have not heard that commercial before, Joshua. No, is that real? I didn't know if that was a real commercial. Oh, yeah, that's real. All these. There's also a Jolly Green Giant song later on. Yeah, now, do you have Jolly Green Giant? Do you have frozen vegetable technology in New Zealand yet? No, I mean, why can't you just eat the vegetable? How about, I'm not even going to ask about hot dogs. I'm guessing hot dogs is a sore subject. And I was like, we, we, we have dogs. So they're driving to the museum. This is the first big battle of the movie. John Spartan and Simon Phoenix in the Museum of, what is it, the Museum of Carnage or something. I kind of forget the hall they're in. I mean, I, I fast forward for most of this battle, so. Yeah, that's the thing. The action movies I don't think are especially good in this movie, so I'm totally with you fast forwarding through them. Basically, blah, blah, blah. They fight for a while, and Simon Phoenix escapes. So round one to Simon Phoenix. I mean, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of Simon Phoenix escaping in this movie. So if that's what you enjoy, this movie's really going to deliver for you. Yeah. So so John Spartan has beaten up uh, Simon Phoenix and caused him to flee. And uh, and this is where we get the first instance of Lenina Huxley being turned on by violence, which I always love that she's she's so horny that she starts going up to John Spartan and she's like so excited that she saw him punch somebody and she says, uh, "Looks like Simon Phoenix has finally matched his meat." You really licked his ass. So she has a little a hard time coming up with these little colloquialisms. I mean, I, I quite enjoyed them. I thought I feel like they were better than the original versions of those sayings. So, I mean, maybe maybe if they tried licking Simon Phoenix's ass, maybe he would have given in a lot sooner. <laughs> That's a good point. I feel like it's Stallone. That'd be an effective tactic for Stallone to deploy. Is that the New Zealand tactic? Is that how the cops do it there? I mean, all, I mean, all criminals are just terrified of ass licking. You are fine. They, they, they submit immediately. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> okay, so, so uh, the 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 president of San Angeles, uh, Doctor Cocteau, his life is spared. That he was being attacked by Simon Phoenix and John Spartan has saved him. And this is where he invites him to dinner. And this is one of the other fantastic running jokes in this movie and i'm dying to know joshua your thoughts on this one where dr cocteau invites him out to a formal dinner tonight to celebrate at taco bell yes so um we don't actually have taco bell in new zealand what the very first time i went to america i was really excited to go to a taco bell because i'd seen it in demolition man i and then i was immediately not excited anymore upon leaving the taco bell Okay, I'll give you a little American back history here. At the time, I don't know if it's still the same, but in the 90s, Taco Bell would have, would have been seen as the lowest rung of fast food restaurants, and that's why they put it in the movie as a joke. I mean, it won the fast food wars, though. It did. It, it, it was the only winner of the fast food wars. That's the premise of this movie, that in the future, all restaurants have died out and have been absorbed by Taco Bell. Every restaurant in 2032 is Taco Bell. So I will say, so I... 
So I watched this yesterday, and I actually had a different cut. So because in the non-American version of this movie, they actually replaced Taco Bell. So in the version I had, it was Pizza Hut, and they redo the dialogue, and they, they actually CGI over all the logos, so it says Pizza Hut instead. And then in Japan, it's it's a different restaurant entirely. Wow. It, I had actually read that, yeah. So for people who don't know... In this and it, it, I mean, you can't... It's, it's also very well done. Like, you wouldn't know it just watching the movie unless you actually, like, read about it. Well, I mean, Pizza Hut is known for quality, so I can imagine the CGI would be the finest. And I mean, like, we... we yeah, we... So we know Pizza Hut. We've, we, we've got that, so... It's a wonderful restaurant. <laughs> it sure is. Okay, so a little back history. Yeah, Taco Bell was seen as the lowest form of fast food in America at the time. They decided to put it as a joke in the movie. And Taco Bell, you may not know this, Joshua, loved it. <laughs> they were so excited. They actually had commercials in the 90s on TV. They would quote this movie. They'd show the clip where him, where the Lenita Huxley saying, in the future, every restaurant is Taco Bell. And they would actually use that in their ads. <laughs> so they went right into the curve and they played around with it. I loved it. The year. 2032, the city, Los Angeles, the movie, Demolition Man, the restaurant. Now all restaurants are Taco Bell. Exactamundo. The Demo Deal, buy a burrito supreme, nachos, and a large drink for one low price, and get an official Demolition Man movie poster absolutely free. I'm impressed. The supply's limited. The conclusion, get to Taco Bell today. I mean, I did once have a pub quiz, so I used to run pub quizzes, and I did once ask a movie, ask the question, in what movie is every restaurant Taco Bell, and not a single British person got it. What? Those damn British people. They have no respect for our culture. <laughs> no, absolutely none. I think, this is what, I think this is why the revolution happened. They, they were just not eating your Taco Bells. So it was all over Taco Bell. Yeah, they, they, so the king the king came, and they tried to take him to dinner in Taco Bell like Cop 2 does in this movie, but he just wouldn't go, so. One of my favorite things, that you, as a non-American, this may, you may find this amusing, is that, like, I live in Cal Southern California, where there's a Mexican restaurant every 50 feet, so, like, you don't really go to Taco Bell here unless you, like, do it in shame, like, you do it at midnight and no one can see you, <laughs> and so it's not really considered, like, Mexican food, it's just fast food. Yeah. But you go to the Midwest, you go to, like, Missouri and Iowa and stuff, and I've actually seen where they do, like, polls in their town for, like, the best Mexican food, and Taco Bell often wins because <laughs> there's, there's no alternative to it. So, like, it depends on where you go, but it, it actually is seen as, like, the best Mexican food in town in, in many places in America. That's a very depressing tale. So we learn that not only is every restaurant in the future Taco Bell – but we also get a great little gag here that uh, apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger was the president at some point in the 90s. And Stallone is like horrified when he hears that because Lenina drops a reference to like the Schwarzenegger presidential library. I mean, yeah, so that was that was quite a funny gag when it came out. But I mean, nowadays, <laughs> it might be preferable. Well, yeah, that's uh, uh, art imitates life or life imitates art, whatever they want to say. But I mean, that, that was one of the most accurate calls in the movie. Well, OK, there's a couple things about this is that Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger love to put little digs at each other in their movies. And it all started, if I recall, in the movie Twins. Schwarzenegger has a joke where he sees Sylvester Stallone dressed as Rambo in a poster. And he, like, looks at him and laughs because he's so small compared to Schwarzenegger. And then this was, like, the follow-up to that where, where Stallone put a dig at Schwarzenegger in his movie. And there's one in Last Action Hero as well, if I recall. Yeah, which is the response to this. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they go back and forth. But what's funny is that, yeah, they made the joke that Schwarzenegger was so popular he was going to become president. And within a couple of years, I know there were senators introducing bills that non-American citizens should be allowed to be president, which they would always call the Schwarzenegger rule. So I think it actually came fairly close to happening at one point. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely remember reading about that at various points. Yeah, so just some of the running jokes. And again, we're about an hour into the movie here. We've had a lot of fun stuff. It's going to become a straight action oh, it's gonna, movie. It's going to crater. <laughs> yes, it's, it's going to become a straight action movie. But we do have the fancy dinner at Taco Bell where <laughs> Lenina and Schwartz Stallone go out. It's like, there's like, uh, what, a, a valet parking? What else is going on at this place? I mean, there's, there's a live band playing the Jolly Green Giant song. Everyone, everyone is dressed up in like fancy suits and like jewelry. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice place. It's the nicest place in town, and they go out and they're like, "Oh, there's dancing." That's the other thing. I, I will tell you, even as American Joshua, I have never seen ballroom dancing at a Taco Bell. I mean, what about like they have like fancy cutlery and like little trays that they bring, little platters they bring the food out. Is that accurate as well? Yeah, that McDonald's they have the dancing. That's that's true at McDonald's, just not Taco Bell. I mean, I think. Yeah, but I mean, Taco Bell took the dancers in the, in the Great Fast Food Wars, so. <laughs> yes, those were dancers from the other restaurants that they absorbed into the Taco Bell empire. It was, it was, it was a brutal, foolish war. Yeah, okay. So this is where Stallone finds out all this history about how, how the rehabilitation process works, that when he was in Frozen, he was supposed to be unconscious, and they were supposed to be piping stuff into his brain, like to rehab him, giving him skills and functional skills. And we find out that he was actually conscious the whole time, so he basically went insane. So this movie is not American. Josh, like you said, this movie, Stallone, represents all Americans, but he's actually insane. So he's even more insane than most Americans in this movie. I mean, he's insane, but he also knows how to knit. He did learn how to knit, so I feel like, on balance, that's pretty good. That's one of the great throwaway jokes that a lot of people forget if they haven't seen this movie, is that everybody gets a skill because they're in, they've been given suggestions in their brain when they're frozen, and Stallone, they've taught him how to knit. So he's like a master seamstress when he comes out. And then he like ruins his uniform later on. He's like, oh, I, I can just knit a new one, so that's fine. Okay, so here we go. There's a... There's a whole underplot in this movie about the underground. There's like these uh, rebels led by Dennis Leary underground, which I could not give a crap about, and I'm assuming you're the same. Uh, yeah, like, I, I absolutely don't care. I don't even remember the name of the guy. There's a main guy. I don't remember his name. Yeah, that's the thing with this movie. Like, I, I can't say it's a great movie, and this is why I think Dennis Leary hated it. It's like you got this whole underground of freedom fighters from the 20th century who are trying to preserve the American way of life, and they hate the people above ground. And it's going to turn into an all-out war between above ground and below ground. And I will tell you, any time the movie goes below ground, I don't care. I have no interest in what's going on. So there's one big point where, like, Dennis Leary gives this big speech about freedom and why above ground is so terrible. I just, I, I don't, I, I, I think it's supposed to be, like, the turning point, the philosophical point of the film. I literally don't care. Yeah, that's the thing. It's because the whole, he goes on a rant. At one point, Dennis Leary goes on a rant, and you're supposed to feel like, yeah, he's sticking it to the man. We're America. Screw you. So as Americans, that should get you. It's all about freedom and for the... If it doesn't appeal to Americans, it's going to appeal to nobody. Exactly. See, that's the thing. I'm an American. I'm the prime audience here, and I don't even care about this part. 
Yeah, like I, I, I did write down some notes. I, I literally just wrote underground and then just put a little blank square <laughs> and then carried on writing when, when I got to the next bit. All right, there, uh, there's one thing that's interesting about the underground part of this movie is that Jack Black shows up. Are you aware of that? A, a very young Jack Black shows up in there. I completely missed that. Yeah, you have to you have to squint to see him. He's one of uh, Dennis Leary's bodyguards, and you can see him in two little scenes. And he's like, he looks like he's about fourteen years old. <laughs> it's a very young Ned Schneebly. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, the underground. I was pretty much just on my phone, so I was not paying that much attention. <laughs> we get only the best hosts here on Staff Picks, but I, I can't make fun of you because I was the same way. I don't care <laughs> one bit about any part of this ending of the movie here. All right, well, we'll talk more science stuff later. We'll skip over the underground, but so uh, Simon Phoenix is here, and the the we're gonna have a plot twist where he's mad that John Spartan's here to kill him, and he doesn't know why. And basically, Phoenix wants to take over the world. He's like, everyone here is soft. I mean, we should also. I think we skipped over why Simon Phoenix was resurrected somewhat. Well, that would involve giving a crap about the underground plot. That's the problem. Okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah, the leader of the underground is named Edgar Friendly, played by Dennis Leary. Simon Phoenix has been thought out to kill this guy by the leader, Dr. Cocteau, and it's all convoluted. You don't have to care about it. It's not interesting. <laughs> but now Simon Phoenix says, I would rather just take over the world in general because there's no one here to stop me. I'm the only person that knows how violence works. So he he goes to the guy who fro unfroze him, Dr. Cocteau, and says, you know, you unfroze me. How about you unfreeze these other six supervillains and give me a team, and then we'll we'll just do your bidding then. No, I'm sure no harm will come to you then. So this is where we get the dream team, who, in one of the flaws of this movie, will immediately disappear, and they have nothing to do with the rest of the movie. I mean, I, yeah, I thought I got confused, but I mean, yeah, I think that that's just what happens. That's the thing about this movie and why it's it's kind of a mess. It doesn't. There's no way you could call Demolition Man a classic or a like a masterpiece. Because they had a ton of writers, and they were all arguing over how it should go, and it gets really convoluted. And this is the part of the movie where it starts falling apart, where... I mean, yeah, we literally just yada yada the actual main plot of the film. <laughs> we did! That's what happens! We get this dream team led by... Now, do you, do you even know who Jesse Ventura is? I, I, yeah, he was like a governor of, at some point, or somewhere. Let's see, you only know him for his distinguished political career. Yeah. Jesse Ventura is one of the greatest pro wrestling villains of all time from the 80s and 70s. Oh, no, we're not allowed wrestling in New Zealand. We, go, we hit it once and everyone got scared and we turned it off. Yeah, but he was, he was this huge thug villain. He used to fight Hulk Hogan and then he became a, a uh, governor of Minnesota. Just like Schwarzenegger, we were joking about Schwarzenegger, that actually happened to Ventura. And he shows up in this movie as like the leader of the thugs and then they, he just disappears. You never see him again. <laughs> They're given absolutely nothing to do, like many characters in this film. Yeah, and I think he's like sixth build in the credits, too, which is even funnier. Well, I mean, there are only, I could probably only name three people in this film, so <laughs> it's a very, there's a lot of people, but none of them really do anything. Okay, so this is the part of the movie where John Spartan has repeatedly beaten up Simon Phoenix, and Lenina Huxley just gets turned on more and more each time. And so she suggests they go back to her place. And uh, let's talk about this scene. This is fun, where Lenina suggests, you know, I like you, John Spartan, and it's so exciting watching you beat people up and then drop <laughs> glib witticisms on them. And she's like, I think we should have sex. And, I mean, he, John Spartan's obviously quite down with that plan. 
<laughs> you don't say no. That's the thing. When someone throws you that offer, yeah, why not? Okay. And you have a young Sandra Bullock. <laughs> exactly. So why don't you describe this scene, the uh, as she calls it, the versex scene. Well, she so she goes off to get ready, and we think we know what that means. But then she comes out with this this white box, which has sort of two helmets on. And so she puts one on and puts one on John Spartan. He's a little bit confused, and they both sit down on opposite ends of the couch, and then they start getting sort of psychologically images of sex, like, beamed directly into their brain while sitting about 10 feet away from each other, no touching at all. This is one of the things we learn about the future, that all bodily fluid exchange has been banned in 2032. And she says later, well, this was bought rampant exchange of bodily fluids was a major cause of society's downfall. And we learned that there was a disease called AIDS. And then, of course, it went to NRS and something called UBT. And so she goes, we have sex, but we're not allowed to touch each other. And Stallone is horrified by this. I mean, as a scientist, I can sign off on that, actually. Body fluids are, gr- uh, like, God, riddled with disease. <laughs> this, is a good, this is a good strategy. <laughs> so so you're thinking the people of San Angeles were on to something here. This was actually maybe a good move we should take. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, if you've got the technology, like, just, um, I'm, I'm for, I'll, I'll, I'll write an endorsement. It's fine. But Stallone is horrified. He will not do virtual sex with a person. He tries to kiss her. Uh, Lenina pulls away, horrified. She's like, oh, you caveman, you brute. Yeah, and she kicks him out of her domicile. Okay, so John Spartan has been kicked out of her apartment. He goes back to his apartment, and he's still, once again, confounded by the seashells. We get that little joke that comes up again where he in his bathroom, he sees them. He's like, oh, I don't know how to deal with that. So the next morning, he has to apologize to Lenina that he tried to kiss her, and he returned down her verse sex request. And uh, this is where we find out that he's a, a seamstress. He starts knitting. <laughs> He knits her overnight. He knits her an entire sweater as a thank you gift. She she seems quite happy with this gift, despite being someone who loves, like, violence and aggression. But there's a great line here from Stallone. He's like, why do I know so much about knitting? Like, why do I suddenly know what a zipper foot is and a shuttle and a hook and a bobbin and a petty point? Which, I don't know any of those words. They could have made those up. But when we were watching, my wife was laughing. So those are apparently all real words. No, yeah, those those, those are accurate terms. Have you been through the rehab program? You know all your knitting skills and stuff? I mean, as a New Zealand high school, we all learn knitting. It's a valuable skill. And we've got, we've got, to, do, we've got to deal with our wool somehow, so. <laughs> That's right. You do have a lot of wool. I forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah, it just keeps piling up, so you gotta, you got to do something. <laughs> yeah, something's getting knitted one way or another. Yeah. All right, so this is where we learn that Dr. Cocteau is the really v- main villain in this movie. He has def- defrosted Simon Phoenix. So uh, this is where Spartan John Spartan goes to confront Dr. Cocteau, and Cocteau's like, enhance your calm, John Spartan. <laughs> and yeah, so it's, it's all, he's all going to go rogue here that Stallone realizes. Everybody's working against him in this town. He's basically going to go underground. He's going to go meet all those scraps down there that nobody cares about. He's going to pull them up as his army, and we're going to take on the power of Dr. Cocteau here. I mean, this is the plan. I mean, about five minutes later, it's going to be proven completely pointless. Yeah, the, the entire last 40 minutes of this movie is one big action scene, which I'm guaranteeing Joshua has not only not taken notes on. I don't think you've even watched it before, probably. I mean, it was it was on. A screen in my house. Well, that counts. So, I mean, I, I, heard, I, I heard it. 
there's another great line here where uh, uh, Sandra Bullock is trying to work on her 20th century idioms, and she knows they're going underground to catch Simon Phoenix, and she's like, all right, I'm with you. Let's blow this guy. You are fine one. And Stallone's like, away. It's blown away. She's like, what? So he's like, forget it. I mean, well, they don't transfer bodily fluids, so obviously they won't know about that. Well, there might be a virtual way to do that. I'm not going to delve too much into this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I feel like this, is, this is a fair hole to go down. <laughs> yes, literally. Yeah, exactly. So Simon Phoenix now has his dream team of all the six cryocons that have been unfrozen. And this is where we see Jesse Ventura the uh, <laughs> for about three seconds. And again, there's a big gunfight underground and it's completely meaningless. And then they go above ground again and blah, blah, blah. And I don't, there's a car chase and there's all sorts of stuff. And again, I don't really care about this. And Simon Phoenix at one point, he can't kill Dr. Cocteau because Dr. Cocteau, you know, implanted things in his brain telling him not to do that. So he just has one of his flunkies. He has Jesse Ventura kill Dr. Cocteau. And now Simon Phoenix is the one who runs San Angeles. I mean, in theory, yes, but his, his next steps suggest that maybe, maybe he's not quite sure of exactly what's going on. Well, again, this movie has about 10 plots that they're all trying to resolve at once. So, so yeah. So at one point, Simon Phoenix is going to take over San Angeles. At one point, he wants all the coastal cities. And then all of a sudden, his plan changes to, I'll just defrost all the other cryocons. I mean, his, his entire strategy was, I'm the only one in the world who knows how to commit violence. Well, let's just unfrost everyone else who knows how to do violence. Well, I mean, that is the thing of monopolies, that a monopoly cannot really succeed without competition. He needs competition to become truly great. I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely economically accurate, but let's run with it. <laughs> well, I know, I know they don't really have, like, economics and stuff in New Zealand, but that's how in America. And I mean, I don't, I don't think Simon Phoenix got a lot of economics classes when he was in cryo-freeze. <laughs> that was not part of his rehab program? No, he, he mostly just got hacking in kung fu. I will defrost every criminal known to man. And that's really the last part of this movie that Simon Phoenix goes to the cryo prison and he starts unfrosting every single criminal, which is, again, as you said, they would just be dead. They would not be defrostable. They're all dead. So he goes through a list of names of, of villains he wants to cross, including Jeffrey Dahmer. And he, I love that guy as well. His, his, his opinion on Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, that's, that leads to an interesting historical joke here. That the Jeffrey Dahmer, very infamous serial killer, arrested in the early 90s. And here in 93, they're making a joke about how he's in prison in 2032. But Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison in like the late 90s or early 2000s. So this joke unravels on several levels when you watch it now. I mean, it's also unravels on the fact it's about Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> the foundation was not solid. So you just like Jeffrey Dahmer references in your movies? You just that that's like that's what plays in New Zealand. Yeah, so it's very exotic for us. So, <laughs> so you guys don't historically eat one another? No, I mean we we tried it once. We don't really talk, like to talk about it. So, so that's more of an Australian thing, really. Yeah, we we, we shipped it over there. <laughs> okay, so. Stallone shows up and he starts fighting Simon Phoenix in the cryo prison and there's all this ice and and uh it's got a lightning gun at one point yeah a lightning gun I forgot about the lightning gun <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing I remember it's the lightning gun 
<laughs> That's all you need to know. At one point, uh, Wesley Snipes starts shooting a lightning gun at Sylvester Stallone, and Sylvester Stallone is trying not to be frozen by the cryopod. And I have no idea what the hell is happening here. This, I believe the sci-fi kind of falls apart here at this point. I mean... I, I, I did used to work in with like cryo liquids, like liquid helium, liquid nitrogen. This does not work. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to tell everyone that this scene is just doesn't work on so many levels. Is there anything about the cryo prison that's even remotely accurate with the cryo freezing process? No. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the worst thing is right at the end where, the, so during the fight, they break this vial, which has got some mysterious cryo liquid in it just basically freezes everything immediately and Stallone has to climb off the ground to not get frozen by it that is completely ridiculous so you're saying Sylvester Stallone cannot outrun the natural cryo freezing process I mean if anyone could do it Sylvester Stallone could but I mean have you seen Rocky he's fast well only only if he's been trained by Apollo Creed (laughs) so so okay so that's the problem so (laughs) So everything in this movie is BS, basically, is what you're saying. I mean, unfortunately, yes. I, I, I went into it with high hopes, but still falling apart. Yeah, this, but this is the fun thing. This entire movie is BS. Almost nothing works about it, but you would still recommend it to people. Yeah, because it's just, a lot, it's just really, there's a lot of goofy things. There's a lot of weird stuff. We, we, we've had a lot of odd, odd stuff to talk about. And it's, it's very different from pretty much any other film you'll see. Yeah, well, we've talked about that on Staff Picks before, that the 90s were really like the golden age of action movies. And it's hard to call this an action movie. Like, it's... I can't imagine this movie existing in any time but the 90s, but it also doesn't really fit in with the 90s. So I consider it like... So it's kind of like two movies. The first half is more sort of the comedy sci-fi. Second half is kind of an action film. Yeah, it's very much a split personality movie. It doesn't really know what it is. And I think I said that at the start. I think the the parts when it's a comedy and a satire on the future work way better than the action scenes. But again, technically, it's an action movie, so I don't really know how you describe it. I mean, I think a much better movie would have been the writer's room of this movie, just filming that. Because <laughs> I, I want to know what was going on in there. Okay, so, so that's going to be your sequel. Are you going to put that together and do like a spec script for us? Yeah, yeah, that'll be, that'll be the sequel of this. So Simon Phoenix shows up in New Zealand. Everyone in New Zealand is non-confrontational. They flee in a boat, and somewhere in the boat, you write this script, and that becomes the sequel to Demolition Man. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much the plan. I, I think it's it's a more solid plan than anything that happens in this movie. So. <laughs> okay, so yeah, at the end of the movie, Wesley Snipes gets frozen by a cryopod, which I'm not even going to let you comment on, and then. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone swings around on a giant claw and kicks his frozen head off. I think that that was the bit I objected to the most. Wait, okay, why do you object to that? What is the flaw there? He can just kick his head off. So you're saying that Sylvester Stallone could not kick frozen Wesley Snipes' head off? Well, no, he probably could. I'm not saying he shouldn't. Can we not? Can we not just like re like take him into prison and like rehabilitate him? He kicks his head off. I'm sorry, did you not see the first half of this movie? That's how they got here. You don't rehab him, you kick his goddamn head off. You are fine one. He didn't have any rehab. He was taught how to do kung fu. <laughs> We're Americans, damn it. We kick people's heads off. Uh, that, that, is, that is the bit where all non-Americans are out. <laughs> you can't kick the head off. <laughs> now, all right, so now scientifically, does it stand up? Would he be able to kick his head off? Now, I'm curious about the science behind this. 
I mean, yeah, so the freezing process is completely wrong, but if he was that frozen, if it wouldn't come clean off, though, it would, I mean, it, you would kick the head off, but also, like, the neck would shatter. It would not, it would not come off cleanly like it did. Well, if the neck shattered, that would just be gross. It was tastefully done this way. It was a clean kick. I don't know what the rating is on this movie. <laughs> it's R. It was rated R. It was very much not for kids, but... He, del- he, he delivered a swift kick, and the head came off out like a ball, like your football, as you would call it in New Zealand, like a beautiful sport, and then the, the head shattered. So I think it was a beautiful ending to Simon Phoenix. I'm not sure Simon Phoenix would agree. I'll ask him when he's in New Zealand. Well, he is a maniac, so I wouldn't trust what he says. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he lies during the film. I think he's quite straightforward about everything he wants. Oh, yes, he's, he's like George Washington, the father of his country. He could not tell a lie, Simon Phoenix. Exactly. I mean, he, he tells everyone he wants to murder them, then he murders them. All right, so we've reached the end of the movie, and John Spartan has saved the day, and he's kicked the head off the dread villain Simon Phoenix in a hor- totally scientifically accurate way. And and then he comes and he goes and he kisses Lenina Huxley. So he would this technically be a sexual assault at this point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so he really is the villain. You actually were correct here. Yeah, he literally just kicked someone's head off. I don't think we need to get him on sexual assault. We've got a lot of crimes we can get this man on. I feel you you can, you aren't able to move past the kicking off of the head. No, I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> That's what this movie does, man. It gets in your head. You never forget it. Yeah, and then it kicks your head off. <laughs> so... John Spartan kisses Lenina Huxley, and she kisses him back, and she's so turned on by maybe they're going to exchange bodily fluids now. So basically the point of the movie here, Joshua, is that nobody has learned anything. We're going to start exchanging bodily fluids again. Yeah, and then, like, the underground dwellers meet the above-ground dwellers, but nothing happens. They just kind of, like, say hello. It's just so unsatisfying. Yeah, it's not satisfying at all. There's these underground dwellers, and they... uh and yeah, they've spent the whole life hating the people above ground, and the people above ground hate the underground dwellers. And at the end, they meet up, and Stallone's like, find something in the middle to get along about, and that'll be good. And that's it. That's the resolution of the movie. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> and again, now, okay, so there are the, the people underground have to get uh, cleaner. The people above ground have to get dirtier. Lenina Huxley is going to start exchanging bodily fluids. This is how it's going to lead to NRS. This is how it's going to lead to UBT. And so this movie is like a endless cycle. It's going to repeat itself. Yeah, in like a few more years, they're going to set fire to the Hollywood sign again. Like, <laughs> wow. So, so this is a Mobius strip of a sci-fi comedy. Is it? It's so much deeper than we ever realized. And did we mention the kicking off of the head? I think we did. <laughs> So anyway, that's the end of the movie, and Stallone and Sandra Bullock walk off into the sunset, and they are theoretically a couple now, and the, the last thing we hear in the movie is him saying, you know, I love this place, it's fine, I get along with everyone, but I still don't understand one thing. What is the one thing he still does not understand, Joshua? It's free seashells. Throughout the whole movie, he has never figured out the seashells, they never explain it to us, and no one knows how the hell they work, so... I think he was so full of rage that he couldn't understand it, that's why he kicked off the head, like... Maybe he should just kick off the seashells. You kick them off the shelf? Yeah, I think maybe, that, that's, that's the strategy. <laughs> that's the, so you just kick them across the room and your anus will magically clean itself? 
it's the future. This kind of thing happens. Now, I do have to mention one thing. Again, this is a goofy movie. Josh and I, we, is it safe to say that you love it, that we love this movie so? I'll tell you, yeah. Even though it's very dumb. A movie doesn't have to be amazing and perfect to be great. It can be goofy. This movie, I love it so. But it's a big mess. There's a lot of plot holes and plot things that don't get resolved. And storylines change and characters show up and then disappear. But one of the biggest ones is the daughter. Are you aware of Sylvester Stallone's daughter in this movie? Yeah, they mention her. And then nothing happens. Yes, because that's, that's the way a screenplay should work. So when I watched it yesterday, I wrote it down in my notes for his daughter because I didn't remember that happening in the film. And then it just doesn't happen. Okay, here's the trivia for people who don't know this, that they had a whole subplot in this movie that Sylvester Stallone's daughter from the 90s is now grown up in 2032, and she's one of the underground people. See, I thought I thought she would be. I thought that would make sense from a script-wise. But... Yeah, and if she is. You go down there, there's a girl at one point he's trying to protect during a gunfight. That is his daughter. But they don't explain it in the movie because what happened was... You'll laugh at this. We'll see how far I can go before you laugh at this. There's a scene where Sylvester Stallone has sex with Sandra Bullock, who's much younger than him. And the audiences were creeped out that he's having sex with a girl who's the same age as his daughter. And the audiences did not like that. And it may have been in the test version that I saw. I don't remember specifically. So they cut out all references to his daughter, and she's never mentioned in the movie again, even though her footage is in there. There's, she's in there. Yeah, they, they didn't cut her out very well. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. They have him mentioning the daughter at the start, and it's the old you know, screenplay adage. If you have a gun on a table in Act 1, that gun better be used in Act 2 or Act 3. And it never happens in this. I, I just want to make a point there. That's called Chekhov's gun. But Chekhov literally wrote a play that had a gun that was never fired. So. All right, so there you go. So so Demolition Man was an actual, it was a very concerted, intricate homage to Chekhov. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Americans wouldn't understand that because you, I don't think you guys are allowed to read any Russian. But <laughs> yeah, so, but your, your astute New, New Zealand mind has parsed that out. Yes. All right. And that is pretty much the story of Demolition Man, a uh, very, uh, what would be the right word to use this, uh, emblematic example of a 90s action movie that could not have existed at any other time. And again, it was one of Stallone's big career highlights, and it was he pimped out all the props in it in those Planet Hollywoods all over the country, and it was a big deal. And again, it, the Wesley Snipes haircut led to Dennis Rodman in the NBA. It led to all sorts of fun stuff. It became the career of Sandra Bullock. And dang, what a goofy movie this is. I mean, yeah, I've been, try I've been trying to make sense of it for many years, and I still haven't. So, how would you, before we sum up and send people off to go enjoy Demolition Man, uh, I know you came into this as a scientist, you have a scientific background. Uh, from science perspective, what works in this movie and what doesn't? Give us the overview here. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, so I'm gonna go, as a scientist, I'll go, go a little bit more serious here. Actually, I think the thing that actually most works about it is the depiction of the people in the future, that they're all you've got a very different change in culture. Like everyone's very nice, happy, pleasant, which sort of really matches what we know from anthropology. Everyone always says, oh, humans are naturally greedy, they're nasty. But we know that's completely untrue. And if you just raise humans in a culture that promotes kindness and meekness, they would actually turn out like the society that we have in this film. And, I mean, the worst thing is everything else. 
<laughs> so, so there's one good thing, and then everything else sucks. Yeah. Though, though also, if anyone wants to hit me up, I'll send you my high school essay where, <laughs> where I went into much more detail. Well, the one thing that strikes me about this movie is this kind of goes counter to what you just said, is that, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I grew up with all these comedians that were really edgy and stuff, like uh, George Carlin, Norm MacDonald, Sam Kinison and stuff, guys that were really hardcore comedy, like, you can't tell me what to do, I'm going to say whatever I want. It's really interesting being raised in that environment and then jumping forward to, like, 2019 and seeing how comedy works now in the world and on the Internet and social media, how you, like, cannot say lots of stuff that would have been totally a absolutely family-friendly joke back in the 90s. So it's really funny to me that I see a lot of parallels as a comedian and a comedy writer in this movie. Like, Stallone trying to deal with 2032 is how I feel a lot of the time watching comedy try to exist in 2019. It's a really... It's a really, uh, they're two different worlds, and they don't blend very well sometimes. Yeah, so, yeah, because I feel like as someone younger, the 2032 world is, it's, it's the world I want. It's the world I, I understand. Whereas the, the Stallone 1996, are we going to rescue a child by blowing up this shopping mall? <laughs> That's the world I don't understand. Now, what's there not to understand about that? you got to get that kid back. I mean, the, as they say in the movie, the shopping mall costs $7 million. The ransom was 25000 Just pay the ransom. Okay, well, I do find that it, the, the, my, some of my favorite Staff Packs episodes are the ones where the two of us are approaching a movie from a different angle, perhaps. And maybe that's the difference in why I had fun doing this one, because <laughs> your view of 90s America is solely dependent on this movie. Is this like the only action movie you've ever seen? Pretty much. Uh, yeah, I've seen, yeah I've, I've seen a couple of like the really big ones, but pr- yeah, that's pretty much... I, don't, I really don't watch action films. So your entire view of America prior to 2000 is this movie. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, I feel like it's. I feel like it's pretty pretty accurate. And you know what's funny about that is that I don't think it's that inaccurate. I think that's a pretty astute uh, assumption of what America was like up until 2000. <laughs> so you watched it right. Congratulations. Oh, that, I mean, that is the only accolade I wanted. Yeah, so we've come full circle. I've given you the props that you needed. And uh, anything else uh, we have to add before we sign off here? No, I think I think that's it. All right, just remember, from Josh's totally scientific, and again, he has scientific credentials. I know you're. I don't want to talk about all your uh, resume and your academics, but you you know what you're talking about. And according to Joshua, the only thing that is accurate about this movie is that a, a utopia can indeed form if the world is less like America, and then everything else in this movie is just shit. You are fine, one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your readjustment, Mark. Yes, that's the uh, the po- the quote they should have put on the top of the VHS movie box. Oh, like if, they, if they want to re-release it, they just ring me up. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the quote. <laughs> okay. And uh, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time, I'll be out there looking for more movies that deserve more love, and I will be scraping my sensitive bits with a seashell to make sure they're clean. I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Your tone is quasi-facetious, but you do not realize that Taco Bell was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars. So? So? Now all restaurants are Taco Bell.
no way.